so is a bit of review. You're telling me that you're beginning to uh, see the hindrances. Yes, I'm, I, yes, I'm being able to see them better. Excellent, excellent. Um, for, for the beginner, it's a good idea to really, really narrow down into a very, very small area, that which we would consider wholesome, and then exclude everything else. Now, this is not only good in the beginning, um, because um, later, after we get very skilled at throwing things out, then we can take a deeper investigation to see, does this actually need to be pursued or not? But by and large, we just kind of throw everything into the bucket of, I, if it's not right now, it's not wholesome. All right. But there is some amount of planning and some amount of taking care of business. If we, if we were not capable of planning and taking care of business, that would have meant that the human being had no need for it and would not have developed that skill and the brain power to do it. So there is a certain amount of planning that makes the human life completely different than the animal. But in the process, uh, we've brought the instinctual feelings into that <clears throat> so that we can't just plan. We've got to plan out of fear and other things like this. So uh, the best thing to do in the beginning is to work with the idea that the wholesome is going to be very, very small and that I can put the wholesome into two baskets that way that I would say is the smaller basket and it's got two eggs in it or two items. One is the absolute here now in the senses with as little processing and little feeling as possible other than just being here in the present moment. And in that regard, we can we can understand that the word thinking is complicated because there are more things that we can do with our attention and our awareness other than think verbal thoughts. So a way that we could do it is, is that we could say that sometimes thinking would be we're thinking about the chest. Now that doesn't mean we're thinking about breast or chest way out there or the chest last year or whatever. We're thinking about this one right here, right now. And the thinking is actually the observing, the watching. The watching just to watch to see what's happening in the moment. That's one kind of wholesome thought. And then the second kind of wholesome thought that we would put in there would be the Dhamma itself in the sense of the teacher's dispensation or the Buddha Dhamma, because we can just consider that the Buddha Dhamma is wholesome. So like the, the teachings themselves, like thinking about the, them? Thinking about the teachings in regard to the first noble truth would be, oh, this is suffering. 
I can see it right here, right now. I can see it as it arises in the mind. Okay. Okay. We can see the second noble truth in the sense that as we begin to understand how the mind works, that's actually a deep exploration of the second noble truth. Of what is it that I'm newly aware of that before I wasn't aware of, which means that in this moment we're in the process of eradicating old ignorance. See things anew, see it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, in the process of becoming satisfied with what we have right now, that means we're getting out of wanting things we don't have which is lust or wanting things, clinging, grasping, okay? Mm -hmm. And also being satisfied with right now, we're also working on the other aspect of the uh, second noble truth, and that is our quality of wanting to get rid of it, destroy it, reject it, conquer it. Um, We can, uh, in the English, the uh, poly had been translated into ill will, Okay. All right. But it is the quality of wanting to stop something. Aversion? Or like put it down. Like Pardon? Like, like aversion, the hindrance, aversion, similar to that? Yes. Okay. Right, aversion, precisely. That's just another word for this whole feeling set. And that um, we have a lot of concepts and a lot of words but none of the words are going to describe it exactly. And not only that, but it's not fixed. It kind of moves around, but it has the general quality of we don't like it. Okay. So that second noble truth then is right at play while we're practicing. And so starting to understand that and starting to um, investigate that. So we begin to investigate the here now, and the instrument that we're using for the investigation is the Buddha's Dhamma, or the um, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, from uh, the most compact package of just three words, Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, all the way out to the full expansion of uh living one's life freely and, and uh, free from suffering and joyfully. So the whole package then, we can start to pay attention to the present moment in regards to the Four Noble Truths. And the key way would be with investigation. For, act, for uh, example, how's my sati? How's my effort? How's my attitude? All right, so these are things that we can investigate. It almost sounds like it's cyclic, that not only are we beginning to change, we're beginning to note the change of watching the change also. All right, so we're going to investigate the Eightfold Noble Path this way. How unified is the mind? How sharp? How focused? Is it dull? Is it capable of work? Is it fit for work? 
And so these are the kinds of things that we can investigate that way. And then the third noble truth. Is this freedom from suffering? Now, one of the things that I think a lot of people have coming from Western society is that they kind of see dukkha in a permanent way, that we're stuck in it completely and we've kind of got to get out of it like um, original sin, all right? that we are born in sin and that our ancestors um, uh, did the sin way back when, so we've got to do it now, as opposed to, oh no, every generation of parents teach their children how to sin, which would be another way of doing it. But still, it has that quality of, there it is, a great big thing. Where within the teachings of the Buddha, we recognize because everything has to do with the here now, there's going to be times in everyone's day when there's no suffering. They're good to go. And in fact, if you question them about it, they'll say, yeah, I'm all right. And so um, the process of Getting ourselves into that third noble truth is something that we want to also monitor or investigate to make sure that um, this is it, that I am satisfied. I am absolutely uh, satisfied and I'm, I have no state of dissatisfaction. It's almost like we'd go through a checklist. And that checklist, by the way, this is back to the teachings of the Buddha in the uh, concept of sunyata, or empty. Because basically what uh, sukha is, is the absence of dukkha. All right, so that means that if you're free, free from anxiety, you should know that you're free from anxiety. You can check it out and say, yeah, where anxiety used to be right now, I don't have it. I'm cool right now. All right. And so this is a way of looking um, in, in that regard, of checking things out to see that things are, in fact, empty of all of the things that would prevent us from being satisfied, dissatisfied, uh, whichever. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, I understand. All right. Exactly. All right. So now let's go to uh, the next point that you made, and that is about the word point. All right. Um, our Western society not only sees uh, uh, the concept of original sin or always suffering, rather than it just intermittent happens from time to time, also, in that same concept, uh, the Western mind is very um, event-oriented. Mm -hmm. We're extremely event-oriented in the sense that we want events to demarcate something. This is the whole concept, many times, of a ritual. Uh, so once the ritual is done and the ceremony is completed, then uh, for sure it's happened.
Um, an example of that is marriage. What is marriage? When when does marriage happen if it's an event? At the wedding. Pardon? At the wedding. Yeah, okay. So the wedding is an event that demarcates before they weren't married and afterwards they were married. Mm-hmm. All right, but marriage doesn't work that way. Marriage is a whole process. All right. And it's a process that may, in fact, uh, let us say in the old days, the sexual act was also that way, but nowadays it's not so much. So that becomes a great big event in the sense of the marriage, that if they go to bed, now they're married. I mean, that's what the Catholic Church looks at it. That's why they have this um, annulment system going. All right, so we do that also in the sense of graduating from college. And that graduation is event. And so then somebody can say, I have a BS or uh, um, an MA or whatever degree. And if they don't go through college to the point of having that event, then the best they can claim is some college. All right. But the point is, is that the whole university experience takes four years of process or more. All right. And that we don't, uh, because of our language and because of our event uh, oriented um, language and culture and nation, uh, we see things like that in the sense of events. And that event then brings in the past and the future, a past event, a future event. But when we rearrange our thinking process to see things as always process, then we can recognize that, well, a university education is not the graduation and the getting the piece of paper. It was the education. An example of that would be the recital piece that the piano student is playing, all right? He uh, is performing that piece in the recital as an event, but learning to play that piece of music that he's performing was really a process. And so when people are clapping and applauding, they think that they're applauding the performance or the event where the reality is is that he uh, they're applauding the process that it took him to learn how to play the piano and then learn how to play that piece of music. So that's an important point. We need to get out of points, of making points out of things. <laughs> um, Danny recently was um, also uh, talking about what great success that he has uh, had. And he uh, made the mention of the fact that it was anticlimactic. All right. That's an interesting concept. Anticlimactic is like that there is really no point. There really is no point to any of this. Or, um, 
but it's all a matter of process. That's funny. Yes, it is, isn't it? And so back to the concept of anticlimax, you see, um, generally, uh, an injury happens, an accident and an injury happens, and that that is one, one sort of a climax because something big happened. But the healing process is always gradual. It's always a process. Mm-hmm that you cannot go to a shaman or a doctor and he shake a little thing like this and all of a sudden the bone is healed or you feel better, right? And yet we tend to think that that's how we, we should go to the doctor. We should go to the doctor, he's gonna give us pills and because we had the event of going to the doctor and getting the pills, the pills are gonna do it all for us. This is what brings up the placebo effect. Have you ever heard of the placebo effect? Yes, yes. Okay. It is the proof positive of the psychosomatic. Right. In, and what we mean by psychosomatic is, is that the mind really does have an influence on the body, even to the point of sickness, to where... Uh, new medicines that come on the market have to go through double-blind clinical trials because people get over it anyway. You can give them the sugar pill and say, this is a new whoop-de-doo drug that's going to cure coronavirus, and pop, they're cured. Where did it, not pop, but over a short period of process, when they begin to talk to themselves, oh, I'm cured now, and so they begin to actually cure themselves as a process. So our uh, skill development of sati is also a process. And that the um, part of the uh, package is to not just develop the skill, but to watch it and monitor it and uh, remember uh, to keep looking. How's my sati? How am I doing? And you can see how these two things fit together very well. That we come out of our uh, event-oriented and go into process-oriented. And then we begin to observe and watch the process. Now, uh, if everything is process-oriented, then that would mean that <clears throat> these um words that have come out of the Pali coming into the English language. When the Westerner hear these words, they don't hear these words as process. They hear them as events. Okay? So when someone says the word sotapan, the Western mind is, that's an event. Before that event... <clears throat> not a stream enter. The event is jumping in the stream and now he's in the stream. This is kind of the idea. But in Sutta number 48, the Buddha points out, oh no, this is all process. And then in fact, this process here is listed out in seven knowledges. Each one of them has to do with <clears throat> the path and the fruit of the path. So there is in fact 
uh, the path is sowed upon and then the fruit is sowed upon that develops as a process. It's not an event. And yet you'll find generally on Reddit that they think of, uh, oh, I'm a soda pond because I had a spectacular meditation or I had a, a good retreat, therefore I am soda pond. Rather than recognize, oh, no, that that's not how it works. It's all a matter of process. That, that in fact, the continuing investigation and the continuing of seeing the, ins, uh, the emptiness of something that used to be there. And so let's take an example then of anger. That uh, because anger and <clears throat> greed, which actually are part of the uh, uh, second noble truth, you could go so far as to say that the first three fetters that are dealt with by the Sotapan is getting rid of the ignorance of the second noble truth so that then we can actually deal with the underlying causes, the other two items. So our ill will, now, instead of looking at it as a hindrance that comes up or as a concept part of the second noble truth, now we're looking at it as a fetter. In other okay. words, the, the propensity for anger to arise out of our not liking. The ignorant arising, because if we don't like something and we're ignorant with that, in other words, uh, the ignorant feeling of not liking, that actually can spiral into anger, ill will. So, if someone then is uh, practicing and continuing to practice so that he recognizes his ill will and he doesn't allow it to get to anger, then later, at a much later time, he can muse over that and say, hmm, you know, I haven't been angry in six months now. Or, hmm, three years later, I haven't been angry in over three years. Mm -hmm. Then a couple of years later, hmm, it's been about five years since I've been angry. All right, so now we're beginning to look back on time to see that over time there has been this emptiness of this particular fetter. That's what goes to show that it's not there anymore, not that some event happened, and then I'm finished with it. Now, sometimes that does happen. Sometimes things do happen that's so spectacular that people get the idea, I am not going to mess with that anymore. We can get really hurt or really burned by doing something, and so we don't do it anymore. An example of that is somebody can actually be a fairly decent horse rider. They've practiced and done some skills, and then this old nag puts you under a tree or goes under a tree just intentionally to knock you off, and he does it at a fairly high speed or other things like this. And when we fall off of the horse, you know, the whole idea is you've got to get right back up on it because if you don't right now, you'll not do it again. Well, now that's a negative connotation, but really you could say that in some cases the horse that we've been riding is a duca horse. It's an unwholesome horse. At this time, it ran us under a tree, and we really got hurt. And we say, eh, I'm not going to climb on that horse anymore. But 
that's still a process and that the longer you go over time, you'll recognize I haven't done that. I've been free from that for a while. And then we can take great joy and wow, I haven't been angry for five years. That's a good idea, you know, it's just to keep watching and keep monitoring and recognizing that you can uh, control it often enough to where it becomes kind of a distant memory, not important anymore. But we still have to investigate. We still keep that investigation going, that investigation and that mindfulness that was unremitting, that keep coming up and keep investigating that did chase the anger away is the same in uh, waking up sati and investigation that's going to keep that anger away for periods of five years or more. All right. So um, many people also have the idea then that the uh, the higher places like you possibly heard the word arahat. Mm-hmm. Do you know how to tell an arahat? No. Well, that's an interesting point, you see, because no one can tell an arahat, but they think that they could if, in fact, it was an event. But it's not an event, it's a process. And over a long period of time, this is something that, in fact, I'm, I'm really remembering a long conversation that I had with Achan Poe. He really kicked me in the butt with this one. <laughs> um, and it comes under the guise that you cannot really tell what's inside another person's mind. You don't know what's there, including the fact that they could be seething with angry anger but still have a smile on their face. Or they could be um, an arahat, and we don't recognize it because we don't know what we're looking for. Just like the Zen master, when he walks into the back of the dojo, he does not know which Zen students are doing Zen until he does a bit of investigation. To where out on the football field, the coach, all he has to do is look at what the players are doing, and he'll know whether they're doing it or not. Why? Because that's an action and you can see the body. The same way is true with the mind, uh, except that we cannot tell what's in someone's mind. We can only see the body. This is where the Zen stick comes in. This is why the Zen stick is there, is because if the student is aware that the Zen teacher is in the room, he'll straighten his posture just a bit. He knows he's there. So he's giving kind of a very subtle signal. I know you're there. Don't hit me. Go hit that guy who is in jhana or asleep or something, and he don't know you're here. All right? So this is all about waking up and, and that kind of thing. So now let's take it to the broad context of how can you tell when someone is an arahat? is because you have to observe them over a long period of time to see what what's absent. Mm. Because that's the whole key. So that's why we have to become uh, attuned to the concept of sunyata, 
we're not looking for what's there anymore. We're looking for what's not there now. So that the forest becomes empty of the village. Alright, so now, now that I've set you up, I've got to tell you some of the things that one would look for, right? I've got to tell you what is going to be there in the one who is not an Arahat and the things that will be there with the Arahat. Alright, an example of that would then be about greed. If one, an old monk, never ask for anything over a long period of time. If he never asks for anything, you can have a pretty good idea that he's finished that fifth fetter. Right. If he never gets angry or shouts or raises his voice, then you can see that maybe he's free from that fourth fetter, too. And then we can go a little bit more subtle, and you can say, wait a minute, does that old monk ever get in a hurry or have some place to go? That he cuts off this conversation because he's got to go someplace. The answer is no, this guy doesn't do that because he's not agitated about the future. So what's happening right now is happening right now. And when this happens, is it finished, and that person goes, then we can go boogie on down the path, you see. Um, and so these are the kinds of things that we begin to look for, and we can see this. There are some also that are very, very subtle, that are more difficult to tell. It's almost like you have to be there at the, uh, at the deathbed with him, to watch him as he dies. But we can actually tell that anyway, because if he is accepting in all of the things, he will probably also be accepting in death. But you can tell about the fearlessness. That in fact, the fearlessness you can see uh, sometimes the, the opposite of fearlessness, which is boldness. And that's one of the qualities that, that Arahats do have. Um, how to say, a lion, that's the word. That fully developed sense of um, <clears throat> everything is okay like it is. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had that kind of trait. And sometimes he would upset people with it. One example, in fact, possibly the biggest example is, is that on his deathbed, he refused to allow the king to send his own private helicopter down to Watson Mok to pick up Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa to take him back to a good hospital in Bangkok. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says, no, I'd rather die here happily, thank you. I don't <laughs> need any helicopter rides. <laughs> Okay, so this is the kind of thing that we can tell, but the whole point is, is that in fearlessness, we, we don't have to go along or do things that way. Um, another example, which is um, uh, quite noted, uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether it was the general of the army the big guy, or whether it was one of the lieutenants, which was the guy would be 
the commander of the police force. I think it was the commander of the entire Thai police system. This is the kind of guy that when he walks into a Watt, everybody pays attention to him. And then he goes right up to the head monk and everybody moves out of the way while he goes up there. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa made this guy wait in line. <laughs> Here he all is dressed up in all his fine uniform and he wants to come and he says, no, you go back over there. I'm talking to these people now. All right. And that did not go down well with some group, but it did with others because it just showed uh, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Das is um, not willing to put up with that kind of pomp and circumstance and, and, and whatnot. Uh, so these are the kind of qualities that, that you will find. Um, not competing with one or not arguing is another one, that they show no conceit, that in fact they show friendliness for everyone. Not competitive. Okay, so now we see no anxiety, which is restlessness. We've got no conceit, friendliness. He's not confused. So there's no ignorance issues there. And it's fearless. This is the uh, Rupa Raga, a Rupa Raga. And these are the high fetters along with greed and ill will which is fetter number four and five. But the foundation of all of this is the first three fetters, which have to do with ignorance. Ignorance about who we are, ignorance about our relationship to the world, and ignorance in general that brings upon doubt. And so the first three fetters then is personality view, who am I? Well, I am what I have been defined to be by the outside world. I, uh, I remember, in fact, um, why I became interested in mathematics. is because the second grade teacher put an outstanding on one of my pieces of paper, and everybody was jumping up and down for joy. <laughs> And that did it, you know. All right, so uh, we get a lot of that kind of feedback and reinforcement as we're growing up. But many times it's negative. Mm-hmm. Many, many times it's negative uh, reinforcement. So we then define who we are <clears throat> based upon our own experiences. And oftentimes we define who we are based upon the outside world. An example of that is profession. I'm a doctor, or I'm a cowboy, or I'm a clown, or I'm a bank executive, or whatever. All right. uh, this is how we often define ourselves, is based upon the outside world. But when we recognize, wait a minute, almost all of the suffering that we have, we learned that from the outside world. And so as we begin to separate ourselves from the outside world, we do that, in fact, through seclusion. And the Buddha talks about it in the sense that we, um, this, that we need to become secluded, to get away from the world, only then to find out we're not really secluded from the world. We brought it in here with us. And so now 
we have to become secluded even from that. In a way, we have to dry out of that um, uh, murky bog uh, of the mind that we got. The Buddha has an analogy. The analogy is, a, um, a, a, I use the term log in a bog. Because that's easy to remember, a log in the bog. In the time of the Buddha, they had professional fire makers. Nowadays, it's really easy to make a fire. But back in the time of the Buddha, it was not so easy, so they had pros to do it. And so the Buddha asked the question, if a log is digging in the bog and the fire maker comes by, can he set that log in the bog on fire? No. The answer is no, no. It's saturated. It's full of stuff. And then he says, okay, if we drag it out of the bog onto the land, can now we set it on fire? Still no, we need to leave it out. Because it's still saturated, it's still uh, soggy. But if we leave it in the sun so that the gravity sinks the stuff out from the bottom while the bright light of the sunshine of the day uh, cooks the top part of it, then the uh, uh, fire maker can uh, set it on fire. Right? That's the analogy for the entire spiritual path as well as the analogy for retreat. The idea is is that to go to a 10-day retreat means that you get the log out of the bog and at least leave it out 10 days so that you can get a little bit of it going, all right? But the broader analogy is is that as we begin to get out of the world at least uh, physically for a while and stay in seclusion and be alone, that then the the world tends to drain out and we can become free from this uh, fetter of uh, rites, rules, and rituals. But <clears throat> it's very difficult for most Westerners to just drop everything, just quit. Go find some robes. Go to go to an Asian Wat. You know that kind of thing is a little bit tough for them. So we have to do it kind of in stages. In the sense of every day we want to get the mind into seclusion, away from the world, and then every day while it's in seclusion physically, we also want to uh, bring the heat of investigation up. As so as to get the old oughts, shoulds, coulds, woulds out. The parent ego state. The mommy that keeps telling you, you've got to go do this and you've got to go do that. The very kind of things that will get a student who is not mindful to get up and walk away from this meditation cushion without even realizing that he's done it. It is actually possible for someone to sit at home in meditation, have the idea they're going to sit there for 30 minutes, and at 20 minutes later, they're in the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, my, my dad did that when I tried to meditate with him. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see it. It happens like that. Yeah. All right. We have to get that mind... Um, dried out a bit and that drying out process is a process it's not an event you just can't take the log out of the bog 
and expect it to be there. That it's a process that it goes through. And over time, we can reflect, oh, I used to have that problem and I don't have it anymore. So begin also to look at the emptiness. Begin to recognize what you used to do that you don't do now. Okay. That'll give you a great big uh, boost into, uh, let us say, the enthusiasm. When you begin to recognize, hey, you're successful at this, that that stuff is gone now. I don't have to deal with that. That I can focus the mind. I can keep it on the breath. I can learn to take deep breath. Not can learn. I am <laughs> doing it now kind of thing. That's how we begin to change our attitude from uh, maybe even can do in the sense of can do in the future into doing or this is it got it all right in the here now this is the kind of way that we are are practicing to bring everything back into the here now knowing that doing that is going to allow a process to continue the process of skill development the process of emptying out, the process of drying out, the process of uh, these old things that you don't allow into the mind, can, we can uncover the very bottom depths of it. Because generally the bottom of it is down there at anxiety or look a little different, deeper and you find that it's fear. That's the bottom line of it. And so we begin to recognize where is the fear? Is there fear or is there not fear? Is there anger? Is there not anger? And so we can go down through kind of a little checklist. <laughs> I just happen to have one, though it's a shorthand version. It's okay. a little joke. In an airplane, you have uh, a Catholic priest and on one side of him is a rabbi, and on the other side of him is a Buddhist monk. Okay. Okay, and they're chatting and having an interesting time, and then huge turbulence comes. like that. And all three of them do this posture. And the Catholic looks and he says, what are you doing? You know, and he looks at the old Jewish rabbi and the old Jewish rabbi says, oh, yeah, I was just checking spectacles, testicles, watch and wallet. You got that? Spectacles, testicles, watch and wallet. And so the priest, oh, at, oh, <laughs> the priest looks at the uh, uh, Buddhist monk. And he says, well, why did you do that? You don't have watches. You don't have wallets. Uh, and he said, oh, well, I do this on a regular basis just to make sure. Am I watching what's going on? Am I well behaved? Am I breathing correctly? Is my heart open? All right. So this is the way that we begin to look at it is, is that we begin to check. Am okay. I watching what's going on? How is my behavior? So I should become a Christian then, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're telling me. 
yes, that's a way of thinking about it. That would be the uh, four of the important ones. Am I watching what's going on? Am I well behaved? Am I breathing well? And is my heart open? So that's um, uh, a way of looking at part of the investigation to keep watching, to keep noting, to wake up to do that. I, I know a different version of the joke, but I'm not sure it would be categorized as a wholesome activity. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll leave it out. All right. Well, let's leave this little talk here. If you've got any questions about it, we've covered really two main points. <laughs> that is that the Buddha Dhamma is pointless. Right. It doesn't have any points. There's no climax. Yeah. It's That's something that I've been. Oriented. I think I've been. I've been realizing that too, like on my own. Uh, just that, like the vocabulary was kind of failing sometimes, and I was like thinking, okay, it'd make more sense if we had words that would describe like, do it, but do it now, but do it continuously. Well, do it again. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. Just right. now, but always now. It's always now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't think I don't think I have any questions about this. Uh, this this is great. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Julian. Well, this has been a delightful chat. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I have as well. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'll see you soon. May your process continue. <laughs> Thank you. It will. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. <laughs>